This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, we're going to talk about the effect of COVID-19 pandemic on the management of patients with chronic and non-urgent illness. We all have been talking about COVID and we know what COVID has done. 8.5 million cases worldwide and over 450,000 deaths. But something which gets lost in translation is all the patients that we were not able to see during this period. I'll just give you an example. Uh, for example, in Mayo Clinic, we see 1.5 million patients a year. I just did a quick math. In the three months that we closed our outpatient for most of the patients, we probably didn't see 375,000 patients. It may not be really 375 plus minus some more or less, but you can imagine if you multiply the number of hospitals in the in US and in the world, how many patients we have not been able to see. Today, we are joined by a very renowned expert from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Sidna Talej Shaital, who is chair of the division of Midwest Community Internal Medicine, and she's an associate professor of medicine. She has a large division of members who are essentially responsible for providing all kinds of care to patients with chronic diseases and routine diseases. Welcome, Dr. Talej Shaitel. Thank you. Dr. Shaitel, my first question to you would be that, how was your planning going on? When you realized that there's going to be the COVID, what kind of thoughts or discussions were you having with your uh, colleagues regarding how can we care for patients with chronic disease or long-term illness, and how does it get affected during a pandemic like, like COVID-19? When we realized that the COVID pandemic was really hitting our area, our initial response was to actually protect our staff because we were concerned first that our staff were, who were more advanced in age or who had chronic diseases themselves um, would be at risk of severe illness and even death um, with this COVID outbreak. So we um, sent, in a very rapid way, many of our staff home to get the social distancing. We didn't want to spread COVID to our patients through our staff being ill as well. So in a very short time, sent people home and trained them on how to provide care using video, telephone, other modalities that would allow us to continue to provide care to our patients. It was very rapid. And the larger clinic that we worked with also requested that we discontinue doing all non-urgent care, which of course disproportionately would impact the critical needs of some of our patients with chronic diseases. And as you alluded to, um, many pre-scheduled appointments for that purpose, whether it be a lab draw or a blood pressure check um, or what have you in ensuring that our patients with chronic disease are remaining healthy. Then at the same time, we decided, we, we recognized that we couldn't continue in this vein for long. Um, so we actually developed a separate clinic called the COVID clinic to help provide care to our patients 
that have any symptom on the lists of a possible COVID symptom, which every day seemed like it was increasing in length. Initially, we were thinking mostly respiratory, muscle aches, fever, cough, and then we became aware that there can be GI symptoms as well that could be potential COVID. And the reason for that, for keeping that separate, was that we wanted to be able to protect our other patients from a possible um, COVID exposure and protect our staff and also be able to allow for full personal protective equipment when seeing patients in this specific uh, clinic. Can you comment on the disruption of care and what really happens in a pandemic? What are the different components of disruption? Uh, you just mentioned you had to divert some forces to telehealth at home. You have to send the staff away. You have to divert somebody to COVID. It seems like there's a lot of disruption and diversion of healthcare that goes on. And we are learning from this episode. But how is it affecting the health of the patients with long-term, who need long-term care? I would say in a variety of ways. Just to give you an example, one of the areas where we have many patients that are very vulnerable is in skilled care, assisting living facilities. And also there's a large group of patients that are at home receiving home health services. And with the COVID outbreak, oftentimes those um, health services, home health services didn't have access initially to personal protective equipment for them to provide care to a patient. Um, so that actually ca has caused a big disruption. I, I work in the COVID clinic myself, and early on, I saw a patient who was very much in need of home health services and hadn't received them for two or three days for medication assistance, bathing, um, for their chronic medication assistance to help with their chronic diseases. And it was really through a collaboration of the Mayo Clinic providing personal protective equipment to this home health service that allowed and, and made their um, nurses or their uh, personal care attendants feel comfortable to go back in the home and provide care. I would say an, another area too in, is um, some of our non-English speaking patients, which as you are aware, have disproportionately been affected by the COVID. There's been at times um, difficulty in being able to communicate about just simply what is COVID and try to help them understand that it's a respiratory illness, that it's transmitted by air droplets, and then what are the measures that should be done to reduce or mitigate spread. Also, just the testing opportunities available. Through actually partnership um, with community resources, um, there's been a lot of opportunity, the Rochester Healthy Community Partnership um, in doing multi-language videos and also recognizing who are the respective leaders in each one of these communities and being able to reach out to them, provide them the key messages, listen to what their concerns are and provide resources needed um, in the care of their chronic disease, plus just in the treatment and spread of the COVID. I understand that with the disruption that happened, not only with these patients not able to come to a hospital, a lot of our translators and interpreters, that services also got disrupted. So you're right. I mean, this must be a very challenging time for non-English speaking mm -hmm. patients. Yes. And also the disruption, which 
uh, you mentioned about not only the healthcare, but the social determinants of health. And I was looking at uh, some of the literature, which they talk about that the access to the food supply got different. There was disruption in the transport, increased personal stress, change in the activity levels. So a lot of these things which we talk of regularly we cover in a general medicine clinic. Uh, these things got uh, magnified uh, in this situation and, and especially the supply chain disruption with personal protective gear that you're saying that probably hit, hit the services uh, big time. But are there any specific patient group with long-term conditions who are at unique risk during this pandemic? We are not over the pandemic yet. So I yes. know we're opening the clinic, right. because we can't wait anymore. Um, you did mention the nursing home. You did mention assisted living, skilled nursing care. That's like huge. But what about the patients who have chronic illness and come to see oh, the clinic? Oh, absolutely. Um, we actually keep track of our patients with um, vascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, asthma. And we have seen, um, as we measure our month-to-month -month performance, about a 3% drop just from not being able to see our patients for about a six week period of time and our labs being closed down as well. So we have seen a decline in our ability to show that our metrics that are ensuring good management of these patients um, has declined. You know, it's like we took our, took our foot off the gas for, for really six weeks. We, we actually have a unique process um, in our area where we have a centralized area that will be sending out reminders to patients when they're due, let's say, for their cholesterol to be checked or their hemoglobin A1C to be monitored. And just having that process come to an abrupt stop for six weeks, it's really been detrimental for us to have our finger on the pulse of how our patients are doing. But now we have started it up. This is interesting. I was reading some of the reports um, and they talk about Hurricane Katrina, which two years following Hurricane Katrina, they found a threefold increase in acute myocardial infarction. And they thought the factors were that there was decreased access to the preventive health services. Hopefully our opening up the clinic helps. They were not able to get their medicine properly or they were also stress related and there was prolonged unemployment in these uh, group of patients, especially from the lower socioeconomic group. And the other study which I saw very interesting was from Turkey, where they had patients with type one diabetes and they had a major earthquake in 1999 and the hemoglobin A1C and the insulin requirement increased tremendously after the earthquake. So I, I think planning ahead, uh, what kind of conversation are you having with your with your physician group? Are they expecting these kind of numbers, like maybe the hemoglobin A1C is going to be worse? Yeah, just to your point, one of the things that we've seen locally here, um, we actually do keep track of the number of our patients going in the emergency room or, or into the hospital, and the numbers have sharply declined since COVID. And just the number, in speaking to our uh, emergency room colleagues, the number of patients coming just stroke or heart attack abruptly declined during COVID. And, you know, I think all of us are asking, you know, what was going on during that time? And, and to what you're saying, I believe we're going to realize the impact in the next coming months as we start seeing these patients again back in the office to recognize that they, their blood pressure might have been higher because of 
worry, having to stay in place, the dynamics of home, the stress of just um, worrying about getting COVID, the stress of maybe unemployment or having a fa family member sick, um, the cortisol levels going up and aggravating blood pressure and blood sugar. So um, I think it's yet to be seen uh, what the impact will be. I think we definitely have seen a, a decrease in healthcare utilization and then for us to recognize the impact. I and think also knowing the, all the other preventive things that you do, the mammograms, uh, the colonoscopy, pap smears, uh, they're all going to be delayed. And once they open up, there's going to be increased need for those resources and there'll be, would there be a, like a traffic jam in yeah. the technology department and the colonoscopy department where everybody who has not got it and is due for it would want to have it. Right. Also, weight gain is another important thing we are finding in COVID time where people are coming to the clinic and they're all commenting about their three or four or five pound weight gain because <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we are seeing that, that's for sure. The other thing I will say, even with us um, having the availability now to see patients, not all of our patients are comfortable in returning yet at this time either. And so some of our patients, we try to reach out with the video um, visit as, as much as possible. Now, of course, some of our elder patients don't um, have access or the know-how of how to connect with video. So at times we'll try to um, be with them through telephone. But of course, there's the limitation that you cannot do a physical exam in that setting. So someone with like congestive heart failure, uh, we couldn't listen to their lungs or assess for volume status. Especially in your, uh, your division takes care of such complicated patients with such variable needs. They are in the community, in the nursing home with slightly different needs, uh, long-term care facilities, skilled facilities. Um, they may be non-English speaking from poor socioeconomic group. Um, so how are you uh, devoting your resources to so many different challenges which have just erupted in such a short time? What can somebody learn from this experience and how are we, how have we put some of the ideas into what exactly what you're saying? First of all, during the, the COVID time when um, much of the demand in patient care had dropped off, we actually asked a lot of our health healthcare staff to front load vacation or, or front load trip time or front load whatever, whatever other activities if they had some time set aside to write a paper in anticipation that there'll be higher volumes now um, with people becoming more comfortable in returning to receive their health care. Also, um, we have tried very hard in mitigating any risk of COVID to our patients. As you know, we're all wearing masks, we're wearing goggles when we see patients. We have a new processes for patients checking out in the clinic that prevents them from lingering in the hallways or at the desk and that we also have like lobbyless type rooming processes for blood draws and for coming in for an appointment. It's been interesting how we accelerated the use of other modalities for caring for patients, the telephone and the video. It's a steep learning curve for our patients and for our staff in getting comfortable with this new modality. We're hopeful that with time that we'll get a better sense of how we can use peripherals using these modalities. I know in the nursing home, they were using InTouch, um, a, a, 
type of iPad uh, software with peripherals available to help examine the patient. But of course, that requires that you have enough staff on the other end at the skilled care facility where they're scarce currently to assist with the placing the peripherals, meaning the stethoscope or the otoscope or what it, whatever it may be in helping examine the patient. Uh, when, I've, when I've been talking with uh, division heads, department heads, as well as business leaders, they said that pre-COVID, they always had some pet project, but which never took off uh, for yeah. some reason or the others. And they took this opportunity, these three months that they had to, to kind of get these uh, projects uh, into action. And you did mention the huge uptake of the video consults, phone mm -hmm. consults, in touch and things that which were just uh, out of reach a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's become regular regular language, yeah. like Zoom meetings, things like that. But what other projects in the community um, medicine involving chronic care uh, disease models do you think we could implement during this time? Yeah. We, we well, and, yeah, in addition to the video visits, which the other thing that really helped with um, being able to provide those is that there were some rules previously that were barriers, such as if you were providing care within another clinic or another institution that you needed to be credentialed, and that was suspended during this COVID time. And second, that the insurance companies reimbursed the video visits very similar to a in-face, in-the-office type visit. So all of those things help break down those barriers. I would say um, the telehealth expansion, and then also another I would say is just uh, with our non-English speaking community, really um, the ability to learn how to do very rapid communication and utilizing different social media, uh, different respected individuals within the communities has been also a good learning and will be beneficial with any future um, epidemic of any any sort, whether it would be a chronic disease epidemic or another infectious disease or COVID wave number two. That's right. Uh, are you noticing um, increased level of stress in your patients who have been waiting to get in or who don't want to come into the hospital? And how's your team managing the patient stress? Yeah, we try to um, like streamline some of our processes to help mitigate those types of barriers or fears that patient would have. Um, for, for instance, um, we, you know, suspending the need to have symptoms to be tested or to suspend the need that you need to call in advance to be tested for COVID is an example. Because some people, you know, language is such a barrier or they may be fearful of providing a lot of their um, personal identification information. And so we, we don't want to make that a barrier. Uh, for those patients to receive care. Also, um, in the COVID clinic, typically we would do a video visit prior to the patient coming into the clinic. Patients who English isn't their first language, we suspend that need for a video visit, just allow the patient to come in, and then we um, access the interpreter through the telephone, not in person at the clinic as well. That's great. That's, that's an awesome way of getting them get the care that they need. Now, some of the lessons that we have learned. I can't say that we have learned all the lessons, but I, I, I guess we better learn it fast. In future, if this happens, what could be some of the mitigation strategies uh, which we could do with patients with chronic term uh, conditions during 
pandemics? Well, I mean, I think having awareness of some resource limitations of our um, home health care providers in that early on being able to partner again to provide the personal protective equipment, um, having a list of our patients that have chronic conditions and that we know typically struggle a little bit more due to social determinants, those for sure are going to be amplified. So reaching out to them proactively, leveraging telephone, video, leveraging lobby lists, processes for keeping up with laboratory work as well. Continuing to separate patients that have COVID eligible type symptoms or known COVID from the rest of the clinic. We'll keep the COVID clinic that is separate from downtown open likely for the next year or so, um, because as the influenza season erupts, it'll be difficult to discern is this influenza or COVID um, in our patients. So we'll want to keep them separate, keep those patients separate from the general patients. And I was also talking with physicians, they're talking about having collaboration with uh, multiple divisions, especially the pharmacy, so that the patient can continue getting medications um, during this COVID period. Sometimes they run out of medicines. Right. And- refills they're not able to reach their doctor so Mm -hmm. and as you mentioned um, having the patients who are infected getting them into a specialty area that's probably the key of containing the infection from spreading into the community have you been challenged by the community or the patients about the other social determinants of health like food services transport services patients can't come in um, i mean thereby involving our social services to help the patients uh, that seems to be uh, a lot of time we think when, when I'm sitting in the room that, oh, that's not my job. Yeah. I'm here just to see the patient, take the history. But the social determinant of health has become so very important with health disparity and mm-hmm. what's going on in our mm-hmm. We are fortunate staying in Rochester, but in bigger cities, it's a bigger, much bigger problem. We've already started the discussion with the uh, community leaders who are of non-English speaking patients, can it be for English speaking patients too? And uh, especially with these essential resources. Absolutely. We actually have supporting our primary care patients, integrated behavioral health, and we have been leveraging them frequently. Uh, fortunately, um, their ability to reach out to patient and have communication with a telephone or video visit seems to be very effective. Um, And we have seen, I would say, more patients with anxiety, with worry, uh, more domestic violence. So all of those have really benefited from that partnership and assistance that they have provided us. And they're masters on knowing all of the community resources to help assist people with whatever um, may have been difficult for them during this time. They say success really is, is a poor teacher but if you, if you failed in something or gone through a hardship, that's a very good teacher. But you don't want to learn a lesson from going through a hard time. So right. proactively, exactly what you're doing is, is going to help these patients. So we have learned a lot. Uh, we have learned about telehealth. You mentioned about self-management strategies being taught to patients with diabetes and heart failure, maybe weighing themselves, how much fluid they're taking. Remote monitoring, you did talk about. You did talk about all the PPE and supply chain management. Uh, is there anything else uh, from the innovation standpoint or research standpoint is aside from 
the practice standpoint that that could be done during this period with the group cohort of community patients? Yeah, like I said, I, th I think the full impact of this pandemic and, and how it has affected our patients' health has yet to be fully realized as we are just starting to see our patients back and get their labs back and measure their blood pressures. I will say in this last week, I did some telephone visits with some patients that didn't have video capability. And I was really impressed by the richness of that type of visit in that it allowed at times other family members to participate and also for the patient to be able to go to their medicine cabinet and pull out their medicine bottle and read to me what they're taking. It, it really provided additional information that normally wouldn't have been there just at an office visit. That's right, that's right. And um, our patients are probably wanting us to be more compassionate, show more empathy during this time, understand their situation because this has been so hard to them. So before I wrap up, this has been an excellent um, discussion Dr. Talit Saitel, anything else from your standpoint which you would like to tell our, to, to our colleagues who are like me doing internal medicine, general medicine practice, uh, what can we do in future to mitigate this or manage these kind of illnesses and what kind of a lessons that your team has learned uh, which, which we need to pay attention to and carry for, the, for any such future tragedies? Yes, I, I would say it's taught us that it takes a village to care for patients, that we really need to unite with our community colleagues, our leaders in the community who are non-English speaking, social services within the clinic, our integrated behavioral health, in addition to leveraging new ways to reach out to our patients, be it by telephone, video visit, and continued um, regular in-office visits and finding creative ways that we can continue to monitor their chronic diseases through um, lobby lists, uh, ability to have your blood drawn, the personal protective equipment, supporting the home health services and what their needs are to have their staff feel comfortable to continue to go in the home and care for the most vulnerable elderly patients as well. So I think we learned that we're not independent in the care of our patient, but we're very dependent on all of those resources to help um, touch on all of the social determinants of health and all of the other barriers that were amplified during this COVID epidemic. Thank you, Dr. Dalit Scheitel. What we have been talking about today is the effect of COVID-19 pandemic on the management of patients with chronic and non-urgent illness what we learned from Dr. Tulich Seitel is that we need to re-examine every aspect of the patient's care from the patient calling us to how we deliver the care. And it's going to be unique for that patient, whether they're English speaking, non-English speaking, what challenges are they facing, so that there's an equitable distribution of all the resources and care that we have for this patient. Dr. Tulich Seitel also told us to use different platforms which have been in the past just a, kind of a tool and an experiment and a pilot in a lot of faith, which is regular circulation now, like telehealth, uh, talking about self-management uh, strategies, remote monitoring devices, and also working on the different aspects of the supply chain management. So we have learned a lot. We are collecting a lot of data. 
and we are going to be, what she mentioned is we're going to be ready with, uh, should an event happen like this happen again, what resources we might need and the actions that we can take. It's always a challenge to kind of think about and planning in advance for an urgency like this. But I think uh, COVID-19 has been a good taskmaster and we have learned a lot of lessons. It's not over yet, so be careful there in the community with social distancing, hand sanitizer, masking, as Dr. Scheitel told us. So that's the end today. Thank you for, for, thank you for your time, Dr. Sidna Tolich-Scheitel. We really enjoyed your talk. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and I will see you back next week.